No, it's good to be with you. I was with you before. Remember we did Hang on Sloopy together? Remember that? I did not know, honestly, I did not know that that was Ohio State's song. I had no idea, but afterwards people said, you know, why'd you pick that song? Because bum, 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 you know, Hang on Sloopy is what we do, right? So great, thank you, Howard, and we can take these things off if we could. Um, so I, uh, I do a lot of things, and I love to play music, and music has a way of communicating spiritual truths. I was talking to Lola about it this morning, and we're in big agreement about this. That music just has a way of communicating very directly uh, the things of God. And so this morning, I would like to uh, do a little teaching about a very important aspect of Messianic Jewish life that we don't really hear about a whole lot, but is really critically important for us as a maturing uh, Messianic Jewish movement. But it's a bit of an experiment, too, because I would like to um, make this a little more audiovisual. So since uh, many of us haven't known each other for a long time, I thought I would begin with a little video about my life and how I came to embrace Messiah Yeshua. So if we could have the lights and put on the video, it's not long, but it'll help orient us a little bit as friends this morning. Okay, here we go. Well, shalom. My name is Dr. Richard Nickel. Let me start off by telling you a little bit about my family background. We were very proud of being Jewish. All my grandparents were Eastern European Jews. My father had been a veteran uh, during World War II. I was bar mitzvah in, the, in an Orthodox synagogue, as were my, my two brothers. That sense of Jewish continuity and Jewish existence was very, very prominent. We never talked about God, ever. My parents are what I would call functional atheists. They just, for whatever reasons, just didn't believe that God existed, and we never talked about it at home. However, I, as a young person, even as a little kid, had a strong sense that there must be a God. When I was a little boy, actually in fifth grade, I started studying the trombone. Trombone became my identity. Rich, the trombone player. I decided to become a music major in college and went to Ithaca College. Each semester, we were required to endure what was called a jury exam. And there was my professor and the other professors and a music stand, and I had to play. I played horribly. I viewed myself as being the stupendous budding trombone player, and I sounded horrible. My lips were chapped. The air wasn't going through. Nothing was working. My teacher said, Rich, we hate to tell you, but you're going to be put on academic probation. I was shattered. I decided after that traumatic moment that I was going to practice like mad and I was going to study like crazy. I will become good at it. And so I followed my high school teacher to Ocean City, New Jersey, and I worked and I worked and I worked. And when I had time off, I would um, go to the Ninth Street Beach. And one day, two college-age young men came up to me on the beach and out of nowhere asked me if I would be willing to take their religious survey. What was your religion? I said, I was Jewish. Do you believe in God? I said, yes, I do believe in God. At the end of the survey, they asked, 
Who is Jesus, according to your understanding? I had no idea what to say. You're, you're a young man. There's a lot of things you don't think about in life, and I never thought about him at all, ever. So I answered, I think he was a great teacher and a great philosopher. However, this interaction with these two guys resulted in my getting to know them as believers and finding out about their world. The main thing that surprised me was one of these two guys, whose name was John, was Jewish, and he believed in Jesus. I never heard of such a thing in my entire life. And I'm asking him all kinds of questions about becoming a follower of this Yeshua, this Jesus. I remember the last question I asked him was this. If I believe in Jesus, am I going to have to give up trombone? And his answer was very wise. He said, Rich, I don't know what God will take out of your life. But whatever he takes out, he will put something back that's better. At that moment, after John's answer to my question, I decided to pray and come to this Yeshua, this Jesus. And I can tell you that when I opened my eyes, I, at that moment, was flooded with a sense of forgiveness, of well-being, a sense that were before, because of my sins, God and I were at odds. Now we were like this. Looking back over my life, I can just say thank you to God for the blessings that he has showered upon me. Not only has he granted me forgiveness of my own sins through Yeshua, which is very real to me, but on top of that, he's blessed me with a fantastic wife. He's given me four wonderful grown children. He's given me four grandsons. I hold their hand when we walk around with the Torah processional. He's also returned music to me. I do music better now and more now than I did when I was young. I thank God for that wonderful day in 1971 when I surrendered and said yes to Yeshua. Messiah. Yeah, that's kind of fun, you know, and that, that really is the story. Of course, it's half the story. I want to talk about the other half a little bit, um, and that is, you know, there is something of a progression to Messianic Jewish life, and I would say that in one sense it goes like this, and, and this is how I would hope that it would go with many of our Jewish people, and that is, that first, you got to do what I did. You have to surrender to the Jewish Messiah. And then, inevitably, or what should occur, I shouldn't say inevitably, but what should occur, is we begin asking big questions like, okay, I believe in him, but he was Jewish, and I'm Jewish, and what does it mean in real life, everyday living, to be a Jewish person and believe in this Yeshua? Does that make sense? And so inevitably, it raises the issue that I want to talk about today. And that is the issue of how we then live, or to put it in Jewish terms, the halakha. What, what is the normative pattern of life that God would have Jews who believe in him embrace? And again, the, the word is halakha, which comes from the a Hebrew root, 
the shoresh is halach, which means to walk, and the idea is to walk through life. So again, that's what I would like to talk about with you a little bit today, but I'd like to use music as a kind of metaphor for how this all works. Before we get into the music, let me just say that the issue of progression and development of how we live is as old as the scriptures. Now let me read to you a little bit from, and if you want to turn with me in your scripture, that would be great. I'm looking at, I'm looking at this week's Parsha, and we are in, uh, what is this here? Uh, we are in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, actually, let's go to Exodus 13, also part of the Parsha. And um, I'm looking at chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. Exodus 13 and verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, this day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord you brought out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast, Today is the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hittites, and, uh, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat, med, uh, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during these seven days. Nothing with yeast is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere in your borders. Okay, with me? Now, let's think about this and think about development. Let's think about how it works in the Jewish world. Now, the idea of not eating yeast, that is, eating matzah, that's something we're all very familiar with, comes from the text, and that idea and that commandment called a mitzvah has come down to us from that day to this. But when Passover comes, do you come to Beth Messiah, or maybe you hold it at a hotel, I don't know how you do it here. Where? At a banquet, at a banquet hall. And do you just come in, and people are served matzah, and that's it, and you sit there for the whole Seder? Is that all you do? No, of course not. What's developed, if we're talking about development, is that you would have, I'm sure you do this, four cups of the fruit of the vine, right? You do that here. Of course you do. And you would have four questions, and you would have a little book called a Haggadah. And you would tell the story of the Exodus, and you might sing some Passover songs, and then, I bet you do this, you open the door to see if who has showed up. Elijah the prophet. Now, these things are so natural to you as they are to us, and what they represent is a development in the awareness of the will of God that the Jewish community has had through the march of history. You see, there's this very interesting interaction with God and his people through the march of history. It's a dialogue with him, and gradually, in ways that sometimes it's very hard to even understand, gradually his will is revealed more completely, more thoroughly. In the days of Yeshua, undoubtedly the, the Passover Seder, we know there was the Seder, but there were elements that were developed, maybe not to the degree that we, that we have. The point I'm making is that the halakha, how you walk, 
is a very important issue for us as Messianic Jews. Because when I became a believer, I was just thrilled to believe in him, and I was thrilled to be Jewish, but I didn't ask the question in those days, what does this mean exactly? How do we flesh this out? It's the concept of the halakha. And now I want to tell you something about how it works. And now I would like to use some music to make the point. There's my flute over there. So I would like to use an illustration from an idiom of music that is uniquely American. And that is the idiom, the musical idiom of jazz. Now, jazz got started in very tough circumstances, in the brothels and in the, uh, of, uh, of New Orleans and Chicago and other places. And so in polite society, religious society back in those days, you wouldn't want to go near it because it had that origin. But many things have kind of seedy origins, but later on are developed into something that is really good and really worthwhile. And the history of jazz is very interesting. We could look at the January 1938 concert of the Benny Goodman Orchestra at Carnegie Hall, which was the point of demarcation when this idiom, which got started in not-so-nice circumstances, all of a sudden became accepted in the wider world. So I, I love to play jazz, and I would like to use it as a metaphor for this whole what we're calling the halakhic process, how it works, how it fits, what happens. Now, in order to do that, you're going to have to help me. Remember the last time you, bum, 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 remember you did that? Well, you're going to have to help me here, too. Now, ladies, you've got to go like this. Can I hear you? I, I'm not hearing enough volume. Come on, ladies, belt it out a little bit here. Now, men on this side. Doom, 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 doom. Go. Doom, 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 doom. Keep it going, ladies. Guys on this side. Good. There you go. That's great. That's great. I know this is a very unusual message. I understand that. I get that part. But I'm a visitor, so you'll let me get away with it. But I have something I want to show you, right? Now, see, let me tell you the idea here and why this is a spiritually relevant message to what we're trying to say. And that is, jazz begins with what we would call a lead sheet, a lead sheet. And this is insider jazz language. Here is a book of lead sheets. And I'll show you what it looks like. It looks like this. It's just a page of music that looks relatively simple. And it has little symbols called chord, chord symbols on top. You follow what I'm saying a little bit? You get the basic idea. OK. But the thing about jazz is that it begins with a melody that you might all know. But then the soloist invents a melody to go along with or to augment or express those chords and that rhythm in a way that can be, can be quite beautiful. So uh, can I ask that that track five be played? And you're going to get the idea of what I'm saying here. And if you would like, um, you can go doom, 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 doom. OK, here it comes. It's coming. 
Okay, thank you. What's the song? Summertime. You like that song? Isn't it a nice song? It's from George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. And uh, it's often originally played in a much slower tempo. This is a swing tempo. Now, that's the song. And that is what's called the head or the, the melody of the song. Now, what we're going to do is do it again. And by the way, don't worry about the, all the making, all the... I'm not sure it's working. So anyway, but listen, listen, you'll enjoy. Just listen to it. Now what I would like to do is do what a jazz musician does, and then from there, apply this to our subject. If you're a Jewish believer, and we as Messianic Jewish congregations, how do we then live? So, can we play it from the beginning again? And you'll see what I mean. get the idea? Now, you see, that was the same melody or the same chord progression, but I invented a melody. I'm going to stand up here so Howard doesn't have to turn around like that. Uh, I invented a melody based on it. Now, here is the analogy. Here is the relevant analogy to the halakhic process and our lives together, because we're talking about our lives together. I don't want to just give you a music lesson. I want to talk about how we should then live. Okay, so um, let me give you three or actually four rules about how this works, how it works well. First of all, the improvisation has to be in the spirit of the song. It has to fit the rhythm, has to fit. If I were to uh, play you remember what we just heard, and I would go um, something like, um, play it again for me. I'll give you, the, give you the wrong way here. Okay. Uh, let's see. Okay. Thank you. Does that sound right? No, not at all, because what the guy is playing has nothing to do with what, what's, what's happening. And you see, when we're talking about the development of normative Jewish practice, when we're develop, talking about that dialogue of the Jewish people and God through the march of history, when we talk about it, we're talking about the Jewish people's interaction with the lead sheet, the lead sheet is the melody, and that, in the analogy here, is the scripture. Or more specifically, we could say the Torah, the five books of Moses. But I'd like to extend it for our purposes. The scripture 
is the lead sheet because it contains the basic melody without which the whole song is, is meaningless. You've got to have the song clear like a bell. You've got to have that piece of the music. And if you don't have that as you're developing halakha, your normative practice, then you're out of sync with what God wants. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, it's really a very important principle. So when we see Yeshua um, disagreeing with some of the religious leaders of his day, he was saying to them, in effect, let's pretend he was talking in jazz idiom, he was saying to them, your solo, ad lib, your improvised solo is not in keeping with what the lead sheet says. Or, you are developing ways of thinking about the Torah which are not in keeping with God's intention. Wasn't that the original, wasn't that the, the kind of the battle that you see? And so, I'll give you an example. Yeshua would go into synagogues and there would be a guy there, we read about this, with a withered hand, for example. I'll give you that example. And he'd have him come forward, and the guy had a withered hand. It never developed, or maybe it was um, because of an accident. And he would speak a word, or sometimes he would touch the person. He had different, there's no one method here, but he would speak a word, and all of a sudden, in front of everybody, that hand became completely normal. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that the best? By the way, you've got to talk to Jim and Lola about when they... We're leading a youth group in Minnesota. Do you know the story that they tell? Ask them what happened to the young man who had a thumb, which was a baby thumb that had never developed. I won't steal their thunder. Let them tell the story. Because uh, Yeshua is alive today, right? So, so here, getting back to the analogy that we're making. Yeshua was saying, oh, uh, he healed the man, and some people grumbled and said, it's the Shabbat. What's he doing healing people? Now let's translate that into Jewish idiom uh, for, you know, to help us understand what I'm trying to get across here. They were saying, we have certain halachic norms. We have certain norms of behavior for what it means to be Jewish, and it does not include healing on the Shabbat. Doing that kind of work is not permissible. And Yeshua, who obviously gets it right, says, you guys are wrong. That God, in his understanding of how we should interact with Torah, should leave room for the healing of a person and not view it as an inadmissible kind of work because God is the God who brings wholeness and blessing. And Shabbat is a picture of that, and healing on the Shabbat should be perfectly permissible. And so in our synagogue, the way we do it is once a month, we have a healing service after the morning service. And it's done with taste, and it's done well, and it doesn't fall into the, some of the traps you find you know, with some of these uh, people you see on TV. But we're starting to see God really show up. Why? Because for us, following Yeshua's example of what the halachic norm is, our jazz solo, we try and keep in, in keeping with his, his understanding. So you see what I mean. The song or the solo, the ad lib, what you, because the scripture doesn't say anything specifically about whether to have healing on the Shabbat, Shabbat, that is the scripture, the Tanakh. 
it's an interpretation based on what we consider to be God's highest values, and Yeshua puts his finger on it. He says healing on the Shabbat is permissible because it is in keeping with God's intention for Israel on this very special day. Okay, so the improv also, to be successful, to be right, has to be beautiful. It must bring out the best in the music. And that is a successful solo. And so Yeshua healed on the Shabbat, and that is a beautiful thing. So the solo has to be in keeping with what God had intended in his lead sheet, the written Torah, and it has to be beautiful. And thirdly, you have to play with others. Now this is a very, very important point. Um, the reason I have the CD is because we have a piano and a bass and a drum, and jazz is a communal musical activity. It's not something you principally do by yourself. You're doing it with others, and the way it works is you play a, play a phrase, and somebody else picks up on that and carries it, then you carry it, and it's a very democratic, communal kind of process. Now, I want to speak to you about this very, very important point. One of the things that, in my view, will make it or break it for Messianic Judaism is if we, if congregations increasingly, leadership comes together and decides on what we will commend as normative practice to our constituencies. You see, American religion suffers, I'm speaking generally now of American religion, suffers a lot because everyone wants to do their own thing. Have you ever noticed that? And it trivializes the experience. It is an overreaction against the hyper-control of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, and it has gone so far the other way, where American individualism has taken over so much that you have everyone just deciding on the fly what they're going to commend as normative practice, and the net result is similar to what would happen to Let's talk about football for a minute. The New England Patriots are playing. Anyone watching the game? You don't care about the New England Patriots. I love the New England Patriots. So anyhow, that's an aside. But let's imagine football. Football has become the American sport, right? And I have mixed feelings about it because the guys get hurt and they're in their 50s and they're, they, they're hurt. And I don't like that about the sport. And it creates a kind of dissonance for me internally because I love the sport too. Anyhow... Football. Imagine if Ohio State said four downs and then you get another ten, you, get, you go ten yards and then you get another four downs. But what if Michigan decided, we don't like football that way, we want five downs. And when you get into the end zone, you get eight points, not six. And then... Michigan, uh, uh, another school, what's another school we could pick? I don't, it doesn't matter. Huh? Penn State, Penn State. We have our way. You get six downs to get 15 yards, and you get 11 points for scoring. Would football be the big sport we have it as if that was the way? No, of course not. Because people would naturally say, you guys don't know what you're doing. 
You say this and you say that and you say that and you can't even play with each other. It wouldn't work. You have to have a certain football halakha. How's that? Now that's coining a phrase for you. I don't think everyone's ever, anyone has used that one before. Football halakha. <laughs> don't quote me on that. It's too trite and silly. But you get the idea. You have to have a certain amount of standardization. And in Messianic Judaism, I'm afraid that there is such wide variability that people, and I think especially the young people, say, this is Mickey Mouse. This is a joke. You do it entirely differently here than here. Here you tell us to do this, there you tell us in another place, and we live in a mobile society where the kids are going to be all over, and, and I think that that is, is not great. And so I think that what we need is for leaders to come together and by praying a lot and working hard and talking and discussing, decide what are the general parameters of what we want to commend to our people. I'm going to give you a very specific example. Now there's an organ, am I boring you yet, by the way? You got a few more minutes? We're okay? Okay, because I know it's a long service and I'm going on here. But I want to give you an example. So there's an organization, which by the way, Howard will be receiving an uh, um, invitation to, should he choose to, to become part, uh, called the Messianic Jewish Rabbinical Council. And a number of us from around the country started this organization about 15 years ago specifically for this purpose. We get up there and say to people, keep Shabbat. Well, no one disagrees with that. But we felt as leaders we had an obligation to answer a question what do you mean by keep Shabbat? Don't you think that's meaningful? Is that a meaningful question? Because those of us with, many of you here, I'm sure with sensitive consciences before God, you want to know, okay, what do you guys say I should do that pleases God? And what's most important and what's not so important? So we'll pick something that is not way up there, but something that we wrestled with, okay? And I'm just going to tell you what we did with it and just the process. I'm not commending anything. This is, you know, I, I, I'm not commending anything specific to you, but I'm just telling you about the process. It's how we developed our, our ad lib solo on the lead sheet in Exodus chapter 30 when it says, 31, when it says, keep the Shabbat. So what do we do? So the question came up, the question came up about Shabbat candles. Now, of course, Shabbat candles are not in the Bible. You know that, right? There's no Shabbat candles. There's, there's lights, there's the Ner Tamid, and you know, there's the menorah and the temple, but there's no. But the Jewish community has, has developed a, a, this uh, practice pretty much universally of lighting Shabbat candles. Why? Well, because candles separate periods of time. Light separates night from night, if you will. And, and also for transmitting Jewish values to the next generation, little children seeing those beautiful lights has a very positive effect. You can get that. Okay, but the question that we wrestled with is this. When do you light them? When do you light them? And two models emerged. One was, well, you light Shabbat candles when you get home. I mean, times have changed. And women are in the workforce, and up in the northeast, you know, it gets, or in the north, it gets dark early. In December, 
Sometimes it's dark by 4 o'clock, right? I'm sure that's here too, although you're kind of on the edge. No, I think it's the same, pretty much the same. So one model was when, what we'll tell people is um, when you get home from work or when you get home. It It doesn't matter what time, just do it. But then another model emerged, and that said, no, don't do it that way. We understand the pragmatic value of doing it that way, but don't do it that way because once you do it, you relativize Shabbat. You trivialize it unintentionally because you relativize it. You take the time that the community has recognized as the appropriate time, and you get rid of that. And sure, you could light Shabbat candles anytime you want, but you lose something very important in the equation, and that is you lose the objective reality of Shabbat. It becomes squishy at the edges, and over time it'll become squishier and squishier and trivialize the whole thing. So we... We uh, decided uh, as a community that what we're going to recommend, we debated this, and we prayed, and we did what they did in the book of Acts a little bit. We said, God, help us as a community to know what to do. And we decided that the latter interpretation was probably a better one, and that reflected the mind of the Lord more. I'm not commending it one way or the other to you. That is a matter that's beyond uh, uh, beyond the scope of what I want to talk about. But I'm just trying to say that it's important for leaders to come together, and sometimes there are minority opinions and stuff, but, but Messianic Judaism, if it's a Judaism of any recognizable kind, has to have some kind of standardization. And it doesn't mean that in our synagogue, for example, that we're the halakha police, you know, we're not going to go around and, and say, hey, when did you light those Shabbat candles? The word on the street is you did it after Shabbat started. No, we don't do that but we do commend what we believe to be the mind of the Lord in terms of these things. And it's corporate, not individual. It's, and the more rabbis that become involved, the better. Okay, so there's one other thing that we need to do, and that segues into the last part of what I want to say to you today. And that is, I mean, we all want Messianic Judaism to thrive, don't we? Don't we want it to thrive? Don't you think it's important? I think we all do. It's important. There's something, fun, there's something so holy about the idea of the Jewish people united with Yeshua in Jewish space. There's something so great about that. And, and we believe that it's prophetic. But there's something that we also have to do, and you've got to train the musicians to play the solo. Uh, when you listen to great players, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, these guys may have not been formally trained, but they, they worked and they really trained. And some of the greatest musicians like a Wynton Marcellus, highly formally trained. And that leads me to my last point here for the day. And that is, we've got to have an institution that combines certain things where there's passion for certain things so that when Howard and I go to the UMJC nursing home in Fort Lauderdale, which does not exist, but should that ever occur, very cracky, I've met you, young man, you know, that type of thing, that there'll be people who'll take over for us and carry this movement to the next level and expand it and grow it. We don't want to be what our critics said we would be, a one-generation movement 
which will die. You know, you don't want this to become a McDonald's one day or a Hare Krishna assembly, you know. No, you want Beth Messiah to thrive for generations to come until Yeshua comes back, ideally. So you've got to have an institution that reflects the highest values that we share. And what are those? You've got to lift up Yeshua because he's the greatest. You say amen to that today? Is he the best or is he the best? Oh, I could... Well, another message another time. I just want to talk with you about how fantastic he is. But you also have to know Jewish life and know Jewish texts. If you're going to call yourself a leader in the Jewish community, put on yarmulkes and taldises and do this and that, then you've got to know your stuff. And we're never going to be as sophisticated as some who have, you know, the resources in the larger Jewish world are far more than what we have. But we can give it an honest shot to be responsible and to teach Jewish texts and how they relate to the Bible and to teach about the halakhic process and to teach people how to give sermons and how to do this and how to do that and how to hold meetings and how to do all the different things that rabbis need to do, whether they're professional rabbis or not. And that school... I think, there are, there are a number of schools, but I think the one that I am most crazy about, obviously because I've become the president of it, is MJTI. I'd like us to close today with a short video, a few final words, and then a giant thank you from me to you for uh, listening this morning. Uh, may these words be helpful and life-giving to you as a synagogue as we all walk together. But this is the point for you've got to train your musicians. Here we go. The Jewish people need credible, well-educated, loving, spiritually mature rabbis and lay leaders to help convince the larger Jewish world that in fact Yeshua, Jesus, is our long-awaited Messiah and that Jewish life in Him is the best kind of Jewish life to lead. We're working to build a Jewish movement where Yeshua is revealed within the heart of the Jewish people. I think one of MJTI's very important missions is to break down the wall of misunderstanding between Jews and Christians. We want to train leaders for an emerging Messianic Jewish community, but we also want to be able to train people within the traditional church and all the historical communions to be able to bring the message of Yeshua as the Holy One of Israel into their church and to bring others along so that we might be able to heal the schism that's existed for so long. Our greatest challenge is to help our people understand that Messiah Yeshua is not foreign to the Jewish experience, but is at the very center of our Jewish lives. And our courses are intended to convey that message a hundred different ways so that the rabbis and leaders that we produce can really communicate deeply with our people. I don't know of any other educational institution that in one place has gathered the scholars in this field, the rabbis in this field, the teachers in this field who know this subject the way the MJTI staff and leaders do. We need to stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before. This is the opportunity I was given at MJTI. It comes from the fact that we see our education as being a matter of spiritual craftsmanship. Our heart has been to support MJTI because 
We believe they're helping to raise up what we hope and pray will be a new generation of young, passionate rabbis who serve Yeshua and can really take on these issues with integrity. Every amount that you put in, you are helping to push the kingdom of God further. I want to thank you for considering supporting the work of MJTI. Together, we really can make a difference in this world, bringing into right relationship the Jewish people and the church and the risen Messiah. What more important work can we do together? Okay, thank you. Uh, folks, let me just wrap it up by saying that uh, MJTI has uh, a program for training rabbis, and our view of rabbis should not just be that they should be professionals like Howard and I are, but uh, also people who can be butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers and still be rabbis. And also we're interested in raising up lay leaders. We have a graduate program. It's not easy, but it's a great program. So if you're interested, uh, by all means, I'll be standing outside the door there, and we can, we can talk about that. And then, of course, the issue of support for MJTI is very, very important. A school uh, has to have the resources, and if you, you have resources and want to help in a little way or a big way, uh, would appreciate it so much. I hope this lesson on the nature of Jewish life, the halakhic process, how important it is, and how complex but yet vitally uh, important it is, has been somewhat helpful to you. Thank you all. Have a wonderful Shabbat.